Welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush, Episode 9, The Golden Stairs. I'm Pascal Halliday. And I'm Keith Halliday. Today we wanted to tell you about the most famous part of the Chilkoot Trail, the Golden Stairs. We'll start in Sheep Camp, the last good camping spot on the Alaskan side, before the summit, and where Tappanadney enjoyed a night in a hotel, believe it or not. Then we'll tell you about the Golden Stairs, how tough they were, and all the entrepreneurs who thought up ways to make them easier, and make a few bucks at the same time. Then we'll follow Adney up and over. Sheep Camp is located in the forest, three and a half miles before the Chilkoot Pass summit. It's the last convenient camping spot, with flat areas, water, and wood for heat and cooking. After that, you pass the tree line into the alpine zones, going up what we'll tell you about in a minute. Places they called Long Hill, then the Scales and the Golden Stairs, followed by the False Summit, just in case you were getting optimistic it might be almost over, and then the summit itself. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, Sheep Camp is about a thousand feet above sea level. In those three and a half miles from Sheep Camp to the summit, you have to go up 2,500 feet more. It gets increasingly difficult to use horses after Sheep Camp, and essentially impossible after the scales. Hence those classic photos of people with huge packs climbing the Golden Stairs. To get an idea of how steep the scales really were, we've linked on our website, klondikegoldrush.org, a National Park Service profile map of the trail. You can see just how steeply the line goes up after Sheep Camp. When Adney got to Sheep Camp in early September 1897, it was a mushrooming, instant gold rush town. He estimated several hundred horses and a much larger contingent of stampeders, plus a few women and many First Nations packers. It had been raining steadily for a week when he got there, and everyone's goods were cached under canvas or rubber covers. Horses were worth hardly anything. Men were giving them away or just letting them loose. Quote, Everything is the color of mud. Men, horses, and goods. Sheep Camp has two wooden buildings. One is the hotel. It has a single room, 20 feet by 40 feet. A curtain at the back surrounds the kitchen and living area of the proprietor, his wife, and their children. They prepare several hundred meals a day. The menu is whatever the pack train had been able to bring from Dai that day. Usually, for 75 cents, you get beans, bacon, and tea. If available, you can have milk and sugar for your tea. After dinner, the dining room became the hotel. Adney described it this way, quote, All who have blankets, unroll them and spread them on the floor. Take off their socks and shoes and hang them on the rafters. Place a coat under their heads and turn in. By 9 o'clock, it's practically impossible to walk over the floor for the bodies. The first night I spent in sheep camp, I spread my blanket under the table, sharing it with a fellow traveler who was not so provided. In the morning, if you need to freshen up, the creek beside the hotel is available to wash your face. And Adney says not even everyone took advantage of this opportunity to wash their face, but just got dressed and carried on up the trail in the morning. Sheep camp seemed like a camp at the edge of the world, where life barely clung on. Law and government were far away. When the town grew to over 5,000 people in the spring of 1898, stories of lawlessness would be rife, and angry miners' meetings would mete out punishments. One of the photos linked on our website shows a thief receiving a public whipping at Sheep Camp. The cruelty to horses shocked Adney. Quote, Their owners have used them and abused them to this point, and are too tender-hearted to put them out of their misery. Their backs are raw from wet and wrinkled blankets, their legs cut and bruised on the rocks, and they are as thin as snakes and starving to death. Abandoned horses were wandering through the tents. 
Once Adney got his tent set up, he was surprised to discover a horse trying to get in to get closer to the wood stove. On September 12th, news arrived of three inches of snow on the summit. Donkeys taken over the pass, somehow, were starving since there was no grazing. The men decided to put the abandoned horses of sheep camp out of their misery, and shots rang out all around the tent town. The culling of the horses added to the sense of gloom. Winter was coming. Packers and stampeders were giving up and trying hopelessly to sell their outfits and salvage some cash from their adventure in Alaska. Others, however, were determined to make it to the Klondike. After leaving sheep camp, the trail rises steadily. You leave the forest and enter the treeless alpine zone. The people who named it Long Hill weren't kidding. Eventually, the trail comes to the scales. This is the last bit of flat ground before the steep climb over the golden stairs and the summit. And this is where a set of steel scales sat to weigh packs before they were lugged over. You had to pay your packers by the pound, after all. Then the trail goes up steeply. Check out the photo on our website's episode page. Another of those National Park Service photos that lets you slide between historic and recent photos of the scales and golden stairs. The golden stairs are the steepest section. The word stairs is the right one, since it's so steep, you wouldn't really call it a trail at this point. From the scales to the summit, it's less than a mile, about one kilometer, and is a 750-foot or 250-meter climb. The trail is very different at different times of year. The pre-rush prospectors often crossed in April, when deep snow made it possible to use sleds to pull their outfits. This made for easier travel, but at the risk of avalanches. You had to wear snow goggles to prevent snow blindness from the bright sunlight reflected off of all the snow. At the height of the rush in spring 1898, some six months after Adney passed through, some entrepreneurs carved 1,500 steps in the snow going up the steepest section. Each step was three feet wide, with a rest area every 20 steps and a guide rope secured on the right side. When complete, they charged a daily fee to use the stairs. Whether because it was on the route to the gold fields, or because of the amount of money the stairs' owners managed to make before the spring sun melted their investment, they became known as the Golden Stairs. This part of the trail keeps that name to this day. Adney doesn't even mention the term in his book, since he passed through before the stairs were cut. For him, passing through in September 1897, this section was a steep scramble of wet or icy boulders, ranging in size from a cannonball to a horse. The Chilkoot Pass was so brutal that it sparked all kinds of entrepreneurial ideas from those struggling to get over. Their ideas ranged from the sound to the improbable, and from mundane to truly visionary. Some of them seemed to make very good money. Adney muses several times in his book why more people don't, quote, recognize a gold mine when it came before their eyes, even if it was not a Klondike one. Indeed, our own family story speaks to this. One of my great-grandfathers never made it to the Klondike since he opened a store in Bennett and then in Whitehorse. Another great-grandfather was a river and lumberman from New Brunswick and stayed around Miles Canyon near Whitehorse, piloting stampeders through the rapids. For a fee, of course. Some stampeders simply became packers, earning daily wages that were ten times or more the average daily wage outside. But this was tough work. Others opened stores, hotels, restaurants, or other businesses. Some came up with ideas to improve the trail. For example, a few guys might get to a particularly tricky creek crossing on the Chilkoot Trail and decide to cut down some trees and build a makeshift bridge. Then they would charge per horse or human that wanted to use it. Some of these efforts had government permits, others didn't. If a stampeder didn't want to pay, 
they could ford the creek without going over the bridge. The owners of the new bridge might sometimes face crowds of exhausted and angry packers who would refuse to pay to cross the bridge. With so many guns around, it could lead to some very tense situations. Some came up with more inventive solutions. A couple of years before the gold rush, an entrepreneur from Juneau named Peterson came up with the idea for a simple rope tramway near the Chilkoot summit to pull heavy loads up the steep, snowy slopes. When we say tramway, don't get too big an idea. Here's how one stampeder described it. Peterson, quote, anchors a pulley at the top through which he passes a rope to which is attached a box rigged on runners. A loaded sled is made fast to the rope at the bottom. The box is then filled with snow to which is added the weight of the inventor and such other men as may be at hand. When this loaded box descends, it pulls the sled up where it is detached. The box is then unloaded and drawn back to the top when the operation is repeated as before, unquote. Peterson eventually leased this contraption to others, who paid him a royalty of half a penny for each pound lifted. The biggest idea of all was the railway from Skagway to the White Pass, which eventually would put all the other toll roads, toll bridges, and tramways out of business. But it would take years to build. In the meantime, there was good money to be made. There were multiple surface tramways on the Chilkoot. One was a more sophisticated version of Peterson's sled and rope. It had two horses, rather sad-looking apparently, who walked in a circle at the summit, turning a capstan, which pulled a rope attached to freight, up over the snow. It only worked when there was snow, of course. Various later versions replaced the two horses with steam or gasoline engines. Then there was the Dye Klondike Transportation Company. It was originally an ambitious scheme to build an integrated transportation system from tidewater at Dye into Canada. However, only part of this system was ever built. It started operating an aerial tramway on March 14, 1898, about six months after Adney passed through. Eventually, there would be several aerial tramways in operation, claiming variously to have the longest tramway span in the world, 2,200 feet, or be the first in the world operated by electricity. We have a link to a photo on our website that shows the scales and golden stairs with tramway lines running overhead. It must have been so frustrating to be lugging your gear up the golden stairs, load by load, while you watched the outfits of the rich boys zooming effortlessly over your head. Once you and your outfit got to the summit, either by aerial tramway or the hard way up the golden stairs, the Northwest Mounted Police and their legendary leader Sam Steele were waiting to welcome you into Canada. They would check that you had enough supplies to last a whole year, and also, of course, collect your customs duties. We'll have a whole episode on their amazing story a bit later. So back to Adney's experience, which we're following from New York to the Klondike. It's September 12, 1897, and he's enjoying the charms of the Sheep Camp Hotel and pondering the latest news from the summit. Three inches of snow and donkeys starving to death. First Nations people tell him he has six weeks to get over and build his boat before the lakes freeze. Ledbetter's consortium was fragmenting under the harsh conditions by this point. Adney got a dozen packers to take his outfit over the summit and to Crater Lake, partway to Lindemann. They wouldn't touch his unwieldy boat lumber, so Adney needed to pay someone else $30 to take that. He also made a new partnership with a fellow named Al Brown from California. Brown had no experience mining, packing, or in the outdoors. But he was a good fellow and was a former amateur rowing champion. Adney is clearly thinking ahead to the hundreds of miles of river and lake travel once he gets his boat built. As Adney approaches the scales, he describes the scene. Quote, The trail enters a cul-de-sac, climbing higher. 
the valley seems to end. A precipitous wall of gray rock, reaching into the sky, seems to head off farther progress, seeming its jagged contour against the sky. A great barrier, uncompromising, forbidding, the Chilkoot Pass. At the scales, which Adney calls one of the most wretched places on the trail, he sees men loading packs and setting off for the summit. The rock and earth are gray. The men in packs are covered with mud and earth, also gray. He looks up towards the summit. Quote, the packers and packs have disappeared. There is nothing but the gray wall of rock and earth. But stop. Look more closely. The eye catches movement. The mountain is alive. There is a continuous moving train. They are perceptible only by their movement, just as ants are. The moving train is zigzagging across the towering face of the precipice, up, up, into the sky, even at the very top. See? They are going against the sky. They are human beings, but never did men look so small. Adney and his partner with stout walking sticks begin the climb. Packers are taking most of their outfit, so they are only carrying their most precious belongings they can't trust to packers. The climb is tough, but not as bad as tall tales had led them to expect. He crosses the summit and sees a grand vista open up. This includes Crater Lake, where the packers are depositing their outfits. Stampeders are carrying their gear down from the summit, or trying to sled their goods on tarpaulins down the snowy slopes, or trying to dry out their outfits on the rare occasions when the sun breaks through. But the euphoria is short-lived. The Canadian half of the Chilkoot Trail still has to be slogged. The next stages of the trail involve boatmen carrying the outfits across a chain of lakes, such as Crater Lake, Long Lake, and Deep Lake. The boatmen are making even bigger money than the packers of Sheep Camp, often 20 or more times the average daily salary outside. But life is tough. One tells Adney he's been at Crater Lake for two weeks, and each morning wrings the water out of his clothes before putting them on. Adney and Brown set off for Happy Camp with their tent, where wood for cooking and heat is available. Now that it's September, the midnight sun is gone and they get lost in the darkness. Spending the night on a mossy spot with their tent spread on top of them, they awake to being covered in two inches of snow. They get to Happy Camp, whose name disappoints. A misnomer, if there ever was one, says Adney. After waiting for several days for the boat lumber, with their boxes stacked on the edge of the tent so it doesn't blow away in the apparently continuous windstorms, Adney decided to return to Sheep Camp to find out what had gone wrong. The problem was apparent immediately. A massive storm flood had swept Sheep Camp almost entirely away. The disaster happened on September 18th, just a few days after Adney left. Many tents even the bigger saloon tents, were completely gone. Some had completely lost their outfits as well. It was a catastrophe. Fortunately for Adney, and unlike his luck back on the beach at Dai, his packer had moved his lumber uphill just before the disaster struck. Adney and the packers get the lumber across the pass to catch up to the rest of the outfit, which by this point is on the chain of smaller lakes just on the Canadian side of the summit. The ferryman at Long Lake won't go out on the lake in a windstorm, but is happy to rent his boat to Adney. Adney and his partner rig a sail and get the boat to the far end of the lake, leaving it there for its owner. They portage a few hundred yards to Deep Lake, where the ferryman is willing to take them. After that, it's only a couple miles to Lake Lindemann. Adney's spirits rise as they descend 800 feet in elevation to Lindemann, entering the Yukon Forest, away from the howling winds and grey rock of the Alpine. He describes it as, quote, a new and smiling country, unquote. He's made it over the Chilkoot Pass. All that's left now of his trip is to build a boat, travel the remaining 500 miles or 900 kilometers, 
and get to Dawson City and the Klondike. If you like this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you really like the episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps about this episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the costs of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but, as an old miner might say, it sure would be nice to make enough to get our grub steak back.